Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. The disco dancing foreign minister of the once mighty German Republic was in Saudi Arabia lecturing the kings and princes who rule that kingdom that they must not allow unconditional entry into the Arab League of the Arab Republic of Syria. Now, I don't know what this teenage scribbler knows about the Middle East, but I'm pretty sure it's precious little. What I'm more puzzled about is why on earth she thought it was any of her business to lecture Arab countries about who should be a member of the Arab League. I'm glad to say she got shot shrift from the increasingly independent leadership in Saudi Arabia. But Anna Baerbock lies over the ocean again. And I know a man who wrote a wonderful song about that. You can hear it and we'll speak to him later. Dieter Dem, Dr. Dieter Dem, who is the presenter of Motes of Deutsch, which begins on Sunday at 5 p.m. Berlin time. If you can speak German even at schoolboy or schoolgirl level, I advise you to tune in at least for the first opening of Motes of Deutsch at 5 p.m. That's 4 p.m. London time, 5 p.m. Berlin time on Sunday. I promise you it's going to be worth watching. And even if you can't speak German, won't it be good to see a man who quite obviously is my brother from another mother. Now, the situation in Pakistan has become beyond critical. Having been arrested by a paramilitary mass whilst in court giving his biometric details and taken off to illegal incarceration in the headquarters of Pakistan's intelligence service, the judge in the High Court, the chief judge in the High Court, ordered his production in court, habeas corpus. Took them an hour and a half to bring him to the court, just about four minutes drive away, but they eventually produced him and the judge declared that his arrest had been entirely illegal and set him free. There were no consequences for the people who ordered, never mind the people who carried out, a brutal, brutish, illegal arrest on a man who is the rightful prime minister of their country. And if there were elections, as there have to be soon, then the man who will sweep the boards, and therein lies the problem. They haven't given up, you know. They are determined to get their hands on Imran Khan. They will not allow him to be effectively under house arrest. And 
Knowing Pakistan as I do, I know the reasons for that. Because if he's inside his house, they or someone on their behalf cannot kill him. As I've said in social media, post after post, they, in a way, cannot afford to allow Imran Khan to live. Because if he lives, he will win a majority such as that has never been seen in Pakistan elections before. Never mind a two-thirds majority, never mind a three-quarters majority. Imran Khan has become emblematic in Pakistan for the people's desire to breathe, to stand up as free men and women, to make their way in the world other than as a satrap of the United States of America. I have outlined so many times I need not detain you now with the chapter and verse. But the Americans ordered the overthrow of Imran Khan for the same reason they have ordered the overthrow uh, of uh, the president of Turkey, Erdogan. They cannot accept any Islamic leader who is independent of them. The attempted coup in Turkey has for the moment been thwarted. President Erdogan got a staggering 49.5% of the poll in the first ballot and will surely win a comprehensive victory in the second. They have failed again in their regime change operation. But in Pakistan, it's not just Imran Khan who is facing imminent arrest again. The number of PTI, that's his party, workers, leaders, members, of the various parliaments, regional, provincial, even national, members of the Senate who have been dragged from their homes in the middle of the night, many of them now absolutely out of contact with their lawyers and their families, being effectively disappeared, has reached the number of thousands. I saw one figure of 7,000 people under arrest, behind bars, with no legal basis, never produced in court, only because they are supporters of the most overwhelmingly popular figure in Pakistani politics in my lifetime. Women are being particularly singled out in a conservative and Islamic society. The sight of women, old women and young women, being physically manhandled by male police officers, taken into custody, and nothing known of their whereabouts or their well-being is causing complete outrage that has reached dangerous proportions throughout Pakistan. And many, like Imran Khan, are being arrested, then released, then re-arrested. This situation has become intolerable to the vast majority of the people of Pakistan. I'm perfectly sure of that. For why otherwise would the imported government, the front page of the police gazette that now seek to pass muster as the cabinet of Pakistan, 
would not be doing everything possible to close down the flow of information in and out of Pakistan. Journalists, like women, are being singled out for torture, disappearance, and in at least one case already, cold-blooded murder, that one in Kenya. But there are others who have been disappeared and who may very well be dead. And one, at least, uh, Mr. Imran Riaz Khan, no relation, I think, who has credibly, reportedly been seriously, grievously tortured in the custody of these paragons of law and order, the once famed for stability, Pakistan Armed Forces and their terrible twin, the ISI, the Internal Security Apparatus in Pakistan. Journalists, women, party workers, MNAs, members of the Senate, members of the provincial assemblies, and now perhaps this evening again the leader, the rightful Prime Minister Imran Khan. Pray for the life of Imran Khan. Pray for the release of Imran Khan. If this situation becomes literally uncontrollable, then tens, tens, scores of millions of people will be furiously teeming around the streets of Pakistan's cities, towns and villages. A country, I remind you, in possession of nuclear weapons. Another American disastrous regime change operation gone very badly wrong. And for the people of Pakistan, I have this message. If you want your country to be a dignified country, and I know that you do, if you want to take your place under the sunshine as dignified men and women, as I know that you do, you must defend with all of your strength the leader Imran Khan. You must ensure that those who seek to murder him are not able to do so. Because if he disappears into their maw, then no one, at least no one on earth, will be able to guarantee his safety. Ironic, as I say, because the orders for all of this were given by another country which has now been exposed as a banana republic. I refer to the United States of America. Every one of us knew there was a terrible smell about the whole Russia Gate hoax. We now know that both Australia and Britain were deeply involved in it. Indeed, the first shots were fired in a bar in London by a Mr. Papadopoulos, then a young foreign policy aide to the insurgent presidential campaign of Donald Trump. Either he said, or it was lied about that he said, that the Russians have dirt on Hillary Clinton. Even on the testimony of the people to whom he allegedly said that, no mention at all was made of any connection between Trump and Hillary Clinton. No mention, of course, of what dirt that was and how dirty it would turn out to be. No mention of a hack was made. No mention of contact 
between Trump and Russian officials was ever made by Papadopoulos, even on the account of his interlocutors who were seeking to entrap him. We know all of this and much, much more because the Durham report has finally reported that Russiagate was a hoax. In fact, it was more than a hoax. It was high treason. It was a conspiracy against the Republic. It was a conspiracy against democracy. It was a conspiracy against the people of the United States, its constitution, and all of its liberties. So much, so what? It's not my business what happens in the United States. Neither is it the business of most of you watching this now. But it is the business of the peoples of the world if that Russia gate hoax made absolutely unavoidable, inevitable, inexorable, the epic existential confrontation that now exists between the United States and Russia over the bodies of the people of Ukraine. And it surely did. It means that all of those media personalities, all of those American politicians like Adam Schiff, who daily appeared in front of the compliant television stations and cameras to say that he knew that he had seen the proof and that Donald Trump might very well end up being executed for treason, for traitorous collaboration with Vladimir Putin and the government of Russia. It was all a lie, as we now know, stamped official. The FBI was up to its neck in what the Durham report describes as a baseless, ponder that word, baseless, without basis, without any truth at all. The FBI and the CIA embarked upon the destruction of the presidency of Donald Trump whose unexpected victory, unexpected except by me and by those of you who were listening to me back in 2016, whose unexpected victory destroyed the hopes of business as usual in the corrupt nexus that is the Democratic Party, the military-industrial complex, and the vast security apparatus in the United States. Hillary Clinton shrieked at Donna Brazil in writing, in email, if this effing B, quite a lady is Hillary Clinton, if this effing B gets in, we will all be hanging with a noose around our neck. That's what Clinton said. That's the state of panic which existed as it became more and more obvious that the complacent entitlement of the Clinton campaign with their baskets of deplorables, forgetting that even deplorables have got votes. And those deplorables' votes count for exactly the same as the university-educated reader of the New York Times. Trump's 
burgeoning voting base became awesomely obvious to the pussy hats and liberals in the Hillary Clinton army. And that army was doomed and damned. And once Trump got in, they realized he might actually drain the swamp. He might actually, metaphorically, one hopes, put a noose around the neck of the criminal political class of the Obamas, the Clintons, the Bidens, the crime family known as the Democratic Party of the United States. He might begin to expose and root them out. And so they literally invented the Russia Gate hoax. This is not me saying this. This is the Durham report commissioned by A.G. Barr all these years ago. Now, it has finally reported, and it is damning and devastating, particularly for the FBI. And so we are asking this evening in our poll, should the FBI, infamous from the days of J. Edgar Hoover himself, herself, itself, whatever pronoun he might have now adopted where he's still with us. Should the FBI be disbanded? You can vote on my Twitter feed, on YouTube, on my Telegram channel, t.me forward slash George Galloway, or on the YouTube community poll. 16,000 of you have already voted, and I haven't finished announcing it yet. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. On this day in 2005, having just been triumphantly elected as an independent in the Bethnal Green and Bow constituency in the East End of London, still basking in that victory, over a Blair Babe warmongering new Labourite incumbent, I was forced to demand that I head for the US Senate to be heard in their allegations against me, against the Secretary to His Holiness the Pope, against the 
United Nations General Secretary against the Foreign Minister of France, against the General Secretary of the African National Congress. I was in very good company being attacked by the warmongers in the United States. And when, entirely foolishly, they decided to allow me to appear in front of the U.S. Senate on this day in 2005, it became rapidly clear that they had, as George Bush might put it, misunderestimated me. Who was I? An undereducated, definitely uncertified, unaccredited, working class man from a council house estate. That's the project for those of you in the United States. Who was I? Didn't even have any university initials after my name. Let them come then, they said, within a couple of minutes. Having been a boxer, I know when you're in the ring with someone who no longer wants to be there. And within a couple of minutes, I was looking into the eyes of then Senator Norman Coleman as he looked around anxiously, wishing somebody could throw in the towel. Here's the highlights. Before we begin, pursuant to Rule 6, all witnesses who testify before the subcommittee are required to be sworn. This time, I would ask you to rise and please raise your right hand. We swear the testimony you're about to give before the subcommittee is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. We will be using a timing system today, uh, Mr. Galloway. Uh, we can have 10 minutes for opening statement. If you need more time, we'll certainly accommodate that, and uh, you may proceed. Senator, I am not now, nor have I ever been, an oil trader, and neither has anyone on my behalf. I have never seen a barrel of oil, owned one, bought one, sold one, and neither has anybody on my behalf. Now, I know that standards have slipped over the last few years in Washington, but for a lawyer, you're remarkably cavalier with any idea of justice. I'm here today, but last week, you already found me guilty. You traduced my name around the world without ever having asked me a single question, without ever having contacted me, without ever having written to me or telephoned me, without any contact with me whatsoever. And you call that justice. Now, I want to deal with the pages that relate to me in this dossier. And I want to point out areas where there are, let's be charitable and say, errors. And then I want to put this in the context that I believe it ought to be. On the very first page of your document about me, you assert that I have had many meetings with Saddam Hussein. This is false. I have had two meetings with Saddam Hussein, once in 1994 and once in August of 2002. By no stretch of the English language can that be described as many meetings with Saddam Hussein. As a matter of fact, I've met Saddam Hussein exactly the same number of times 
as Donald Rumsfeld met him. The difference is Donald Rumsfeld met him to sell him guns and to give him maps, the better to target those guns. I met him to try and bring about an end to sanctions, suffering, and war. And on the second of the two occasions, I met him to try and persuade him to allow Dr. Hans Blix and the United Nations weapons inspectors back into the country. A rather better use of two meetings with Saddam Hussein than your own Secretary of State for Defense made of his. In the same opening paragraph, you assert that I was an outspoken supporter of the Hussein regime. This is false. I have brought along here a dossier, a dossier for all the members of your committee of statements by me as late, as early rather, as the 15th of March, 1990, in which I condemn the Saddam Hussein dictatorship in the most withering terms, a stance I have taken since around about the time you were an anti-Vietnam War demonstrator. I was an opponent of Saddam Hussein when British and American governments and businessmen were selling him guns and gas. I used to demonstrate outside the Iraqi embassy when British and American officials were going in and out doing commerce. You will see from the official parliamentary record, Hansard, from the 15th of March, 1990 onwards, voluminous evidence that I have a rather better record of opposition to Saddam Hussein than you do and than any member of the British or American governments do. Now you say in this document, you quote a source, you have the gall to quote a source without ever having asked me if the allegation from the source was true, that I am, quote, the owner of a company which has made substantial profits from trading in Iraqi oil. Senator, I do not own any companies beyond a small company whose entire purpose, whose sole purpose, is to receive the income from my journalistic earnings from my employer, Associated Newspapers in London. I do not own a company that's been trading in Iraqi oil. And you had no business to carry a quotation, utterly unsubstantiated and false, implying otherwise. Now, you have nothing on me, Senator, except my name on lists of names from Iraq, many of which have been drawn up after the installation of your puppet government in Baghdad. If you had any of the letters against me that you had against Zhirinovsky and even Pasqua, they would have been up there in your slideshow for the members of your committee today. You have my name on lists provided to you by the Dolfer inquiry, provided to him by the convicted bank robber and fraudster and con man Ahmed Chalabi, who many people to their credit in your country now realize played a decisive role in leading your country into the disaster in Iraq. There were 270 names on that list originally. 
that's somehow been filleted down to the names you chose to deal with in this committee. Some of the names on that committee included the former secretary to His Holiness Pope John Paul II, the former head of the African National Congress Presidential Office, and many others who had one defining characteristic in common. They all stood against the policy of sanctions and war, which you vociferously prosecuted and which has led us to this disaster. You quote Mr. Taha Yassin Ramadan. Well, you have something on me. I've never met Mr. Taha Yassin Ramadan. Your subcommittee apparently has. But I do know that he's your prisoner. I believe he's in Abu Ghraib prison. I believe he's facing war crimes charges, punishable by death. In these circumstances, knowing what the world knows about how you treat prisoners in Abu Ghraib prison, in Bagram Air Base, in Guantanamo Bay, including, I may say, British citizens being held in those places. I'm not sure how much credibility anyone would put on anything you managed to get from a prisoner in those circumstances. But you quote 13 words from Taha Yassin Ramadan, whom I have never met. If he said what he said, then he is wrong. And if you had any evidence that I had ever engaged in any actual oil transaction, if you had any evidence that anybody ever gave me any money, it would be before the public and before this commitment today. Because I agreed with your Mr. Greenblatt. Your Mr. Greenblatt was absolutely correct. What counts is not the names on the paper. What counts is where's the money, Senator? Who paid me hundreds of thousands of dollars of money? The answer to that is nobody. And if you had anybody who ever paid me a penny, you would have produced them here today. Now you refer at length to a company named in these documents as Eredio Petroleum. I say to you under oath here today, I have never heard of this company. I have never met anyone from this company. This company has never paid a penny to me. And I'll tell you something else. I can assure you that a radio petroleum has never paid a single penny to the Mariam Appeal campaign. Not a thin dime. I don't know who a radio petroleum are, but I dare say if you were to ask them, they would confirm that they have never met me or ever paid me a penny. Whilst I'm on that subject, who is this senior former regime official? that you spoke to yesterday. Don't you think I have a right to know? Don't you think the committee and the public have a right to know who this senior former regime official you were quoting against me interviewed yesterday actually is? Now, one of the most serious of the mistakes that you have made in this set of documents is to be frank 
such a schoolboy howler as to make a fool of the efforts that you have made. You assert on page 19, not once, but twice, that the documents that you're referring to cover a different period in time from the documents covered by the Daily Telegraph, which were the subject of a libel action won by me in the High Court in England late last year. You state that the Daily Telegraph article cited documents from 1992 and 1993, whilst you are dealing with documents dating from 2001. Senator, the Daily Telegraph's documents date identically to the documents that you are dealing with in your report here. None of the Daily Telegraph's documents dealt with a period of 1992-1993. I had never set foot in Iraq until late in 1993. Never in my life there could possibly be no documents relating to oil for food matters in 1992-93, for the oil for food scheme did not exist at that time. And yet, you've allocated a full section of this document to claiming that your documents are from a different era to the Daily Telegraph documents when the opposite is true. Your documents and the Daily Telegraph documents deal with exactly the same period. But perhaps you were confusing the Daily Telegraph action with the Christian Science Monitor. The Christian Science Monitor did indeed publish on its front pages a set of allegations against me very similar to the ones that your committee have made. They did indeed rely on documents which started in 1992-1993. These documents were unmasked by the Christian Science Monitor themselves as forgeries. Now, the neocon websites and newspapers in which you're such a hero, Senator, were all absolutely cock-a-hoop at the publication of the Christian Science Monitor documents. They were all absolutely convinced of their authenticity. They were all absolutely convinced that these documents showed me receiving $10 million from the Saddam Hussein regime. And they were all lies. In the same week as the Daily Telegraph published their documents against me, the Christian Science Monitor published theirs, which turned out to be forgeries. And the British newspaper Mail on Sunday purchased a third set of documents, which also on forensic examination turned out to be forgeries. So there's nothing fanciful about this. Nothing at all fanciful about it. The existence of forged documents implicating me in commercial activities with the Iraqi regime is a proven fact. It's a proven fact that these forged documents existed and were being circulated amongst right-wing newspapers in Baghdad and around the world in the immediate aftermath of the fall of the Iraqi regime. Now, Senator, I gave my heart and soul to oppose the policy that you promoted. I gave my political life's blood to 
try to stop the mass killing of Iraqis by the sanctions on Iraq, which killed a million Iraqis, most of them children. Most of them died before they even knew that they were Iraqis, but they died for no other reason other than that they were Iraqis with the misfortune to be born at that time. I gave my heart and soul to stop you committing the disaster that you did commit in invading Iraq. And I told the world that your case for the war was a pack of lies. I told the world that Iraq, contrary to your claims, did not have weapons of mass destruction. I told the world, contrary to your claims, that Iraq had no connection to Al-Qaeda. I told the world, contrary to your claims, that Iraq had no connection to the atrocity on 9-11-2001. I told the world, contrary to your claims, that the Iraqi people would resist a British and American invasion of their country and that the fall of Baghdad would not be the beginning of the end, but merely the end of the beginning. Senator, in everything I said about Iraq, I turned out to be right and you turned out to be wrong. And 100,000 people have paid with their lives. 1,600 of them American soldiers sent to their deaths on a pack of lies. 15,000 of them wounded, many of them disabled forever on a pack of lies. If the world had listened to Kofi Annan, whose dismissal you demanded, if the world had listened to President Chirac, who you want to paint as some kind of corrupt traitor, if the world had listened to me and the anti-war movement in Britain, we would not be in the disaster that we are in today. Senator, this is the mother of all smokescreens. You are trying to divert attention from the crimes that you supported, from the theft of billions of dollars of Iraq's wealth. Have a look at the real oil for food scandal. Have a look at the 14 months you were in charge of Baghdad, the first 14 months, when $8.8 billion of Iraq's wealth went missing on your watch. Have a look at Halliburton and the other American corporations that stole not only Iraq's money, but the money of the American taxpayer. Have a look at the oil that you didn't even meter, that you were shipping out of the country and selling, the proceeds of which went who knows where. Have a look at the $800 million you gave to American military commanders to hand out around the country without even counting it or weighing it. Have a look at the real scandal breaking in the newspapers today, revealed in the earlier testimony in this committee that the biggest sanctions busters were not me or Russian politicians or French politicians. The real sanctions busters were your own companies with the connivance of your own government. Well, God gave me wings that day, that's all I can say. They never did ask me back. I don't quite know why. Special award for anyone who can tell me who was that other undistinguished individual sitting right behind me, whose face got longer as the testimony continued? You can text us or tweet us or somehow communicate to us. Should the FBI be disbanded? Well, 
15,677 people have voted thus far. And it's yes, 86%. Yes, 91%. Yes, 96%. Yes, 91%. J. Edgar Hoover, your boys are taking a hell of a beating. Take note. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. There are more people in Germany opposed to the prevailing orthodoxy, the prevailing narrative on the war, on NATO, on the austerity that is being imposed upon the European public to pay for the war. This extraordinary situation is juxtaposed with the fact that in Germany you can speak less freely about these matters than virtually anywhere else in Europe, even including in the United Kingdom. The censorship is more or less complete, and the criminalization of those with a democratic alternative to the course that we are on is underway in Germany. So, I thought of Moats of Deutsch. Now, there are not many men that I would trust with my Moats hat, but we found each other. Dr. Dieter Dem, a long-standing parliamentarian in Germany, having served the best part of 20 years in his parliament, me, I spent the best part of 30 years in mine. We wear the same hat, the same glasses, we have many of the same tastes. He is me in Germany and I am him in the United Kingdom. It was a match made in heaven, as you will swiftly see, because Moats of Deutsch, Moats in German, the Mutter of all talk shows, begins on Sunday. And Dr. Dieter is briefly with us now, but he is busily preparing for the launch of his show. Dr. Dieter, thank you for squeezing us in. The show begins on Sunday at 5 p.m. Berlin time. Tell us, what have you got lined up? Yes, hello, George. It's the same hat, and <laughs> under the hat are nearly similar brains. Uh, I'm very proud that uh, your uh, great format modes in the United Kingdom uh, would try it with me and my team. Uh, in Germany, we have uh, the situation you just uh, uh, described in a correct way. Uh, the, it started with a financial crisis in 08. It went over to changing the German language, so-called gendering, and then in the part of the uh, migration crisis, uh, you were forbidden to have some questions about the uh, green political ag agenda. And uh, then comes the corona pandemia and uh, everybody was forced uh, to uh, take a vaccination, which is in a certain kind, well, not so, not so healthy. And uh, the people were went 
timid, they were not uh, couraged, and with the war, it came uh, to a point where you really can uh, imagine and, and grip with your hands that the, the people are looking to the next table, to the table beside. I'm allowed to say that Zelensky is not uh, the fighter for the uh, Western freedom uh, and uh, the, the parliamentarian and the democratic uh, rules or we want. So uh, I think it's necessary that we, in the first, in our first show, uh, concentrate ourselves to the situation of the media. So our poll has the yes or no question. Are the Tagesschau, that is the main show of, of news in the German first program, are is that Tagesschau trustable or not? And the poll is uh, working since yesterday. And today we have something about 70% of the people who thinks, no, it's not trustable. That means we need something as a uh, modes of Deutsch. Uh, because the the big media uh, are so uh, so so powerful and uh, so dictating uh, that uh, there must be the spirit of freedom again. And we were proud of the spirit of freedom with uh, my former friend Willy Brandt, our chancellor. I wrote some speeches for him. And I was for the SPD in the Bundestag and afterwards for the left party. And we had the, the uh, spirit of freedom with some journalists who are encouraged to say uh, some uh, truth which is not uh, polite to everybody. And uh, now uh, we have no, uh, no leader in the Bundesregierung, in our government. Uh, we have no great, no, we have some great journalists, but they uh, were uh, in were driven, in, driven into defense. And uh, so we need something who encourage the people. And like the format you are, you are doing, we should encourage people to come with us and put their questions to us within the show. Yes, I mean, it's about breaking the mold, isn't it? The uh, public is divided in Germany, just as it is everywhere yes. else. It's just that the yes. public has nowhere freely to express itself. Yes. Yes, that's, that's true. And uh, the, the main point, I should say, it is the stomach and the heart of democracy is to put questions, not so, not at once telling your position like a credo, but to put questions, to be septic, to be agnostic, to, to ask. And if it's forbidden to put questions, then the democracy is on a bad way and therefore we do it. 
Exactly. So 5 p.m. on Sunday. Uh, do you have any guests you want to tell us about or are you keeping them up your sleeve for now? <laughs> we uh, have some, always we will have some songs. Uh, we will have some, some parodies, some satire. That means we have one guest who is uh, nearly the same as the leader of our Christian Democratic Party, Friedrich Merz. And he will tell his opinion to the media and the press situation in Germany and to the freedom of opinions in Germany. So it must be, I, I, I hope it will be funny that uh, we have this great uh, comedian who is playing uh, Friedrich Merz. And then we have a very, very famous influencer uh, who has hundreds and thousands, hundred thousands of uh, followers. Uh, the, the Germans know him under his name, Ken Jepsen, but he has another name and we will uh, tell you on Sunday. And then uh, we will have a, a lady which is the bestseller author of, of, author of our uh, greatest publisher, Rowold Verlag, Ro, Ro, Ro. And uh, she was one of the persons uh, who was involved in the peaceful revolution of 89. She was on the Alexanderplatz. She was uh, telling uh, that the GDR is not in that special format as it was uh, her cup of tea, but she wanted uh, the GDR uh, staying and remaining. And, but in another way, and she is uh, one of our guests to the actual situation of the Ukraine war, to the actual situation of the um, media freedom in Germany. Daniela Dan. Is it sounds name. like it sounds like a fantastic show, Dieter. I wish you every success so. with it, and we'll be keeping the global audience appraised of how well, and I'm sure it will be well how well you're doing with Moats of Deutsch. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Honorable Dr. Fred Mbembe was one of the guests in China with me at a recent conference. My speech there was very well received. His speech there went absolutely viral. I consider it the best speech of the day. And I was speaking. He is a star. He's the leader of the Socialist Party of Zambia, the president of it. Dr. Fred Membe joins me now. Since when, Dr. Fred, you've had some rough treatment on the campaign trail. I saw some disturbing footage uh, of that. As I told you when I was in China with you, I remember Zambia so fondly. I 
spent a lot of time there in the era when the ANC were headquartered there and the late Oliver Tambo was based there, the leader of the ANC in the absence of Mandela in jail. Uh, and the leader was the avuncular KK, Kenneth Kaunda, a gentleman in my opinion. But Zambia is not what it used to be, is it? Definitely, it's not what it used to be, George. Thank you very much for bringing me on this program today. And thank you for seeing you after almost a, two months uh, since we met in, in Beijing. Yes. Zambia was progressive under Kaunda. It supported the liberation movement. It was a revolutionary country. Today, Zambia is on the path of reactionary. It is supporting imperialism. It's an agent of imperialism. It's a puppet of imperialism. It, is a, it has accepted to set up military installations of the USA on its soil, something that could not be imagined some two decades or so ago. This is where we are. Today, Zambia is led by people who represent the interests of those who first colonized us. George, you may be aware that the first colonizer of Zambia was a mining corporation owned by Cecil John Rhodes. It was not the British who first colonized this territory. It was a mining corporation, the British South African Company, owned by Cecil John Rhodes, an imperialist of great magnitude at that time. From 1891 to 1924, we were under direct rule of a mining corporation. And this mining corporation waged a war against our people. From December 1897 to the 4th of, to the 4th of February 1898, they attacked the Ngoni people in the eastern part of Zambia. They believed there was gold there because south of that part of Zambia, they had found gold in what is now Zimbabwe. And they believed in the northern part, there was also gold. So they wanted to take over the land owned by the Ngonis. The Ngonis were descendants of the Zulus who came to, Zambia, to this territory in 1830. They were descendants of the Zulus who had defeated the British army at the Battle of Insandirwana. They resisted Cecil Rhodes taking over their land. But Cecil Rhodes, was well, Cecil Rhodes' army was well equipped, well resourced. They had no choice but to defend themselves with as a guy. Although they had a few guns they had acquired from, the, from trading, they realized that they could not use those few guns because the ammunition, the gunpowder had to come from Cecil Rhodes. So they resorted to fighting with as a guy against advanced weapons of that time, seven-pounders. After two months, they were defeated. 10,000 young Ngonis were massacred. The leader of the Ngoni warriors, the son of 
King Mpezen was captured on the 4th of February, 1898, court-martialed, and the following morning at dawn, on the 5th of February, he was executed together with his two wives by a mining corporation that ruled this territory for 33 years. Later on, we know that the BSA was taken over by Angle. It was taken over by Angle. The descendants of Anglo today are back in Zambia, setting up mining interests, controlling the government. They are responsible for putting the ruling party in power. They have a foundation called the Brentis Foundation, which is sponsoring the DA in South Africa, which is sponsoring Chamisa in Zimbabwe, which is sponsoring Bobby Wine in, in Uganda. Why should a mining corporation be interested in the governance of a, a territory? It's not in you. They governed before. Now they wanted to govern indirectly through their puppets. We hope the people of Zimbabwe will not do what, the, what we did in Zambia. By allowing a puppet of the Transnational Co Mining Transnational Corporation to rule us, to govern our country, and it handed over to the people who had plundered us, brutalized us for decades. Although ZANU-PF has got challenges, yes, it has made many mistakes, it has many weaknesses, we still feel it would be better to continue with ZANU-PF than hand over to people who we fought and defeated in the second Chimurenga. Doctor, that's the key point that you made. These people ruled before and were defeated, uh, but they yes. have licked their wounds uh, amended their modus operandi and have yes. come back. But this time, they have competitors, not just brave African competitors like you, but the allies of people like you. And I refer, of course, to China and to a lesser extent, Russia. Uh, they are no longer only worried about Kenneth Kaundas, they are worried about China and Russia and its ever-increasing popularity uh, amongst the African people. Is Zambia immune from that development? The Zambian government, the current puppet government, voted with the USA on, on the issue of Russia. We know very well that provocation is a tried and tested weapon of imperialism. They are provoking us here. They provoked a war between Ukraine and Russia. They are provoking China. There's nowhere in the world where imperialism has resorted to this poisonous weapon so brazenly, so freely, as in the case of Russia today. It's very clear. China isn't being spared. China is being provoked in a similar way in the case of Taiwan. The war in Ukraine did not begin with the Russian intervention. 
there, there is a series of authors of this war. Each one is important to understand what is going on today in Ukraine and in the conflict with Russia. There's issues of ethnicity because imperialism divides people. NATO's expansion is very clear. Despite the assurance NATO had given in 1990 to the last government of the Soviet Union that it will not expand eastward, that assurance was given by Secretary of State James Baker when he said there will be no more an inch movement towards the east. But we know that in, 20, in 2004, seven Eastern European nations were absorbed in NATO. That's Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia. They were absorbed in NATO. By the time we're getting to 2007, the Russians had started to realize they were in danger. Despite that, in the early, 1990, in the early 1991, Russia was partnering with NATO under Boris Yeltsin from, 1890, from 1991 to 1999. Russia was cooperating, was partnering with NATO. They wanted to be part of the European project. But it failed. Even under Putin, when Putin took over, President Putin took over, there was still some cooperation. There was still some interest in the European project. But soon they realized it wasn't going to work. And more and more threats, more and more provocations were put in the way of Russia. So the war in Russia, the conflict in Russia today, is, did not start with the Russians getting into Ukraine. There are a series of factors. Imperialism, George, can't survive without war. Imperialism can't survive without conflict. Today, however, things are changing. We have progressive people like yourself using whatever opportunities are there, using this platform to educate, to agitate, to organize, to mobilize our people against the provocations of imperialism. We need a peaceful world. We don't need wars. We need a peaceful world, but that peaceful world will not come to us in a peaceful way as long as imperialism dominates. There's work to be done, and thanks for the great effort you're exerting every day. You are doing a great job. We are very proud of you. God bless you. God bless you, Dr. Fred Membe, the president of the Socialist Party of Zambia. You actually read, hopefully after some years, my gravestone. Agitate, educate, organize. Organize, That's the slogan mobilize. inscribed. Yes. 
That's the slogan inscribed on what my heart. Dr. Fred. What, what a great epitaph. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. A great character, Dr. Fred, I must say. Coming up after a short break is one of the most popular of all guests on the mother of all talk shows. He's Brian Berletic from New Atlas, a man who knows about war, having been a former United States serviceman, but who now analyzes war in a way that they don't like at all. That's why we love him. He's on right after this. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Geopolitical analyst, founder of the new Atlas, joins us now on the Mother of All Talk Shows. Brian, glad that we finally uh, connected. We're a little short of time now, so let me dive straight into a question I think you know a lot about, but which most of our audience doesn't, though they're going to have to become so. Namely, the elections, the political struggle for power in Thailand, where uh, it would appear some funny business is underway. What can you tell us about it? I have been talking about this for many years, the U.S. investing millions of dollars over the years, uh, not only building up the political opposition here in Thailand, but a, an entire network to support them and to grow in parallel to the sovereign institutions in Thailand and eventually displace them. And I'm talking about uh, taking over the media, the information space, working its way into the education system, and essentially creating an electorate that will consistently vote in favor of U.S. interests at the cost of the best interests of Thailand. And it's a very similar situation to the political capture we see all over Europe, Europe collectively. And we see where that has ultimately led this proxy war with Russia through Ukraine and Europe sacrificing itself uh, politically and economically for that proxy war. The U.S. is pursuing a very similar process here in Asia versus China. And Thailand is just one of many nations in the region that faces political subversion sponsored by the U.S. And it has manifested itself in this most recent general election. The U.S.-backed opposition has gotten uh, uh, the most votes and they're poised to form the next government. And so uh, we're just awaiting uh, probably a cycle of instability and perhaps even violence uh, following this. Ontology is important, uh, of course. Uh, how do you characterize the political positions, the stripe of uh, this once opposition, now majority party in Thailand? They pose as progressive. They're pro-Western. They're overtly anti-China. They control the media here in Thailand. And so they essentially, they just translate the Western mainstream media into Thai and uh, bombard the Thai population with these messages, uh, poisoning the Thai people against, obviously, R Russia and any other enemy of the West, but uh, specifically China, trying to convince Thai people that their largest trade partner, investor, source of tourism, infrastructure partner is actually bad that Thailand should pivot away from China 
and work more closely with the United States and Europe. But they never explain work with the, the U.S. and Europe uh, in what regards. There is nothing that the U.S. and Europe can offer as an alternative to the large and growing cooperation Thailand has with uh, China. And they've put, pro before even getting into power, they were putting protesters in the streets to protest against Sinovac and demanding that the government buy Pfizer and Moderna. I mean, it, it was that transparent. They've also not only opposed the Thai Chinese high-speed rail link, which is already under construction, they've gone up and down the route the, that it's being built and encouraging villagers to try to obstruct its construction using uh, all kinds of legal means. And they oppose uh, military cooperation with China and the procurement of military arms from China. Uh, but when Thailand is buying anything from the United States, they're suspiciously quiet. So it, it, it really is a very transparently pro-West and specifically pro-U.S. proxy. Uh, the National Endowment for Democracy has built up a massive network in parallel with this opposition party to support them, to build up public support for them, to help get protests into the streets when they need to coerce the establishment and, and the rest of the Thai population. And it's very similar to what we've seen elsewhere in Eastern Europe, in Ukraine, uh, and even in countries across the region here in Myanmar, in Malaysia and the Philippines. What's the attitude of the crown uh, to all of this? Uh, to what extent does this, uh, this uh, liberal pink wave uh, generated by the United States impinge on the traditional reverence almost for the monarch uh, that, to my, in my experience, the great majority of Thai people feel? Well, that, that's precisely right. The, the vast majority of Thai people revere the monarchy. They respect and revere the military. These are two sovereign institutions that have protected and unified Thailand for centuries. Thailand is the only Southeast Asian country that avoided Western colonization, and it was because of the leadership and unity inspired by the monarchy and the military. Uh, so what the U.S. has done with their media and uh, together with this opposition is they've begun poisoning the Thai people against both institutions. Uh, some of the primary uh, uh, things that they ran on as their platform was essentially scaling back. And they don't say this directly, but we, we know that this is what they mean to get rid of the monarchy and to eliminate the military as an independent institution, to eliminate these two unifying institutions as a check and balance against their uh, getting into power and then uh, maintaining their grip on power. Thank you, Brian, for a necessarily brief look at a very important question to which we shall return, I promise. Brian Berlitek in Thailand, on Thailand, thank you very much indeed for joining us. A legend's on the line, no? I need to clear the decks. It's Simon in Florida on Pakistan. On you go, Simon. Good evening, Mr. Galloway. There, I'm very sad to say that um, moving though your monologue was regarding Pakistan, I fear the situation is actually much more serious than you've um, explained to the audience. We really are at the moment of existential crisis this evening in um, a broadcast that Mr. Khan put out while he was believing that he was about to be rearrested at any moment as the Pakistan interior minister 
has indeed indicated is likely to occur in the early hours of the morning, that he felt that the nation was about to be broken into so many pieces that it would be impossible to put it back together again, much like Humpty Dumpty falling off the wall. And indeed, earlier during the day, President Dr. Alvi, the um, constitutional president of the country of Pakistan, put out a very, very long public statement reminding the citizens of Pakistan how it had gone through so many trials and tribulations in much the same way as you yourself have experienced in your knowledge of the country going back to the 1970s. He went back even further to the 1950s and 60s and gave great examples of um, political disagreements causing great harm to the country. But he ended his statement with a very moving passage that said that um, it was only great nations who were those who had learnt from their history and didn't repeat their mistakes, whereas other nations who failed to learn from history would disappear as dots in the sands of time. I mean, a truly, truly um, terrifying prospect for the fifth largest nation in the world. But if I may, I would like to draw the audience's attention to three enormous events that are going to occur simultaneously on Friday of this week, just in two days' time. You've already mentioned the Arab League and the comments spoken from ignorance from the German foreign minister. But unfortunately, the situation from the American perspective is far worse than that. There's now a bill being put forward by two very senior members of the House of Representatives to extend sanctions not only onto Syria, but onto any member of the Arab nations who actually dare to pursue more harmonious relationships with Syria, a, a truly great overreach on the part of the American legislatures, which unfortunately it seems quite likely to be passed in short order. Then, of course, we have the G7 meeting in Japan, which is now a triple meeting because America's on the verge of bankruptcy. And so Mr. Biden is not able to fly on to Australia and he's having to dash back to Washington, D.C. in the hope of salvaging some kind of agreement so that even more debt notices can be issued by the American Treasury. But at the same time, in the city the ancient 3,000-year-old city of Xi'an in China, we have, for the first time in 30 years, the prospect of a great treaty between the presidents of all five of the Central Asian nations and President Xi of China to issue in a new era of transportation cooperation, visa-free travel, cultural exchanges, university student exchanges, and an even greater increase than we've experienced in the last few years of an enormous growth of business. But this also marks a shift for these five nations that have previously been members of the Commonwealth of Independent States post the breakup of the Soviet Union, very much more so into the sphere of influence 
of the People's Republic of China. And I think this is completely understated its significance in the Western media. So people should be aware that when they have some relaxation time this weekend at home, assuming they're not having to work seven days a week to survive in the United Kingdom now with situations so parlous there, that they should possibly consider and read the details about those three very, very important meetings that are all happening simultaneously on Friday of this week. And we'll cover many of them, uh, Simon, on Sunday, God willing, uh, in the mothership on the mother of all talk shows at 7 p.m. UK time. Thank you, as always, for your erudition. Uh, very considerable indeed. I'm chastened by the uh, points that you made about Pakistan, a country I love and have an uncountable number of friends and relationships with. Its breakup has long been sought, its physical breakup has long been sought by uh, many of its adversaries. It would suit some uh, if it were to break up, raising all the issues of ownership of the nuclear weapons and the role that the broken up Pakistan would play and the bloodiness of the last breakup in 1973 with what is now Bangladesh, the bloodiness of the original breakup of India at the partition, piloted by the Earl Mountbatten uh, over a boozy lunch with his incredibly close friend, Mr. Nehru, and which led to the deaths of millions, tens of millions of people and the scars which have never healed of the events uh, of that uh, partition. It could scarcely be of greater moment. That's why the British Prime Minister describes it, waving it away, brushing it off his shoulder as an internal affair. Well, it won't be an internal affair for very long if Pakistan descends into the vortex. I'm already four minutes over my uh, ascribed time for the show. I hope I'm still speaking to someone and I haven't been cut off by some imaginary uh, or some invisible hand. I wanted to close uh, by expressing my grave concern for a regular guest on the show, Gonzalo Lira, an American Chilean citizen uh, taken on video uh, by the goons of the SBU, uh, the uh, mailed fist of the coup regime in Kiev, charged apparently uh, with aiding and abetting the enemy, although he bravely stayed in place throughout all of his journalistic and broadcasting work. If he had wanted to become a propagandist, he surely would have fled to the Russian lines. But no, Gonzalo Lira, whose politics, by the way, more generally, I do not share. Some of his attitudes I 
actually abhor and am shocked by. But on the subject of the war in Ukraine and the truth and the lies of it, who could fault Gonzalo Lira? If anyone hath fault with it, let them come forth and show where he has been wrong. I never found him to be wrong in his descriptions of the military, political, economic, social, cultural situation in this dreadful situation of now 15 uh, months uh, into the terrible war in Ukraine. Since his arrest, we have heard nothing of Gonzalo Lira. We'll continue to hold a candle for him. And we ask all of you to contact the American government and the Chilean government to press upon them their absolute responsibility for the safe passage of their compatriot, their citizen. After all, Joe Biden said journalism is not a crime. As I've already said, try telling that to Julian Assange, but try telling that to your own citizen, President Biden, Gonzalo Lira, the American citizen now in the hands, in the dungeons, hopefully still alive of the SBU working for the Kiev government in Kharkov. Uh, it's been marvelous. Uh, for me, I hope it was for you. Talk about action packed. Not sure we could have squeezed any more into that show. Luckily, we've got another one coming up in just a few days on Sunday at 7 p.m. UK time. Please join me for the mothership for the Sunday edition of the mother of all talk shows. And of course, if you can speak even rudimentary German or would even like to learn, tune in to Motes of Deutsch at 5 p.m. Central European time. Good night.